Hi, this is a podcast of the best bits of Breakfasters for weekending Friday the 16th of April. Breakfasters is a Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Coming up on this podcast, you'll hear us chat to drinks expert Cara Devine about the Melbourne Cocktail Festival. And we also talked about an anniversary that I celebrated and uh, some good tips for donating blood. Uh, Simon Hinckley chatted to us about mites. Mm. Ew, but... <laughs> unsung heroes of the forest uh, and also had a chat about um, school sports, softball mainly. We were joined by author, paleontologist and friendly overachiever Tim Flannery about Australia getting to zero emissions and comedian Nikki Britton was our Friday funny bugger. Triple R. Cara Devine is a drinks expert, manager at Bomber Rooftop in the city and host of Behind the Bar on YouTube. She's involved in the Melbourne Cocktail Festival. Hopefully she can make a hot toddy for me soon. (laughs) And uh, it's on now until April 18. And to tell us about it, the self-described booze-blasting bar commander joins us now. Cara, welcome to Breakfasters. What was that, sorry? I just said, welcome, welcome. to Breakfasters. Welcome. Thanks oh, for being sorry. here. As you can tell, it's a little bit earlier than I'm normally here. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> um, tell us about the uh, Melbourne Cocktail Festival and its renewed importance this year. Yeah, I mean, um, it did happen last year and that was really cool. But I just think especially after the year that we've all had, everybody really kind of needs a drink um, and just that push to sort of get people back into venues and getting used to being out and about in the city again um, is is really important and it's a very sort of uh, creative and inclusive festival. So it's a lot of fun. Um, it, it is Tuesday morning. Monday night is normally hospitality night. So... A big thank you for for being up at this hour. Um, can you um, – I was also out last night. Um, are there cocktails that are good for hangovers? Uh, as in to have in the morning? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Well, my, my personal favourite is the Michelada, which is kind of, um, I guess, almost a Mexican spiked beer um, that they have in the morning, which uh, is – you can do it almost like a Bloody Mary, so with some tomato uh, juice in there as well and a little bit of spice. And you kind of, But it's not quite as boozy as a Bloody Mary because the beer is the base, so it's a little bit more refreshing. Wow. That's a – Brilliant tip. I'm very glad I asked yeah. that question. <laughs> what, one to Melbourne as well. So. What, what, will, what will be your involvement? What's going on during this festival? Um, well, for the whole week, they're running a bar safari. Um, so I think if you buy a ticket, um, then you get to kind of unlock a little cocktail that um, various bars have made for the festival and get a special price on that. Um, so that's kind of a cool way to just maybe discover some new venues as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so Bomba's taking part in that. And then on Thursday, um, we're doing the Espresso Martini Project with Mr. Black because it's you know, definitely one of my favourite cocktails and I think one that people like to maybe uh, be a little bit tongue-in-cheek about sometimes, but it's a very good drink as uh, so we're, we're celebrating all things coffee. How do you, how do you um, jazz up an espresso martini from the one that people make jokes about? Like well, what? I mean, I think, like, you know, genuinely just using good products and not making it too sweet, using real coffee as well so that it's actually got that bitter note to it that, you know, as Melburnians, we all appreciate, I think. Um, and then you can definitely play around with bringing some other flavours. One of my favourites is my ex, um, second in command, came up with one that she called the Long Black. That actually used some Vegemite in there for that <gasps> little umami uh, kind of <laughs> edge to it as well. Which sounds a bit odd, but don't knock it till you've tried it. Yeah, sounds like breakfast. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> what uh, what gets you all? Oh God, <laughs> Daniel's not old enough <laughs> to drink. Oh no, I'm undergoing a second puberty right here. I've got a fake ID. Uh, what uh, what gets your juices flowing making cocktails? Um, I mean, I think obviously the cocktails and, you know, sort of the liquid in the glass is important, but honestly, most of the time it's just, it's hosting people and, and making people have a, have a good time. You know, cocktails are kind of, it's, they're, they're a little bit of escapism. They're a little bit of frivolity. And so I think that's, um, that's a really fun thing to be able to do for, for people on a night out Mm. is, uh, is introduce that, yeah, a little bit of fun for them. And when you're like make like inventing cocktails, do you like set time aside to go, or does it just kind of go, oh maybe I'll try putting this and this together and see how it happens? 
there's a little bit of both. Um, I think obviously you'll quite often take inspiration from, you know, maybe flavor combinations and things that you've seen elsewhere. Mm. Um, but also, you know, especially with my bar manager hat on rather than my kind of cocktail bartender hat on, you do tend to be looking at, you know, how, what the base bit it's going to be, whether people are going to kind of enjoy or think that the flavors are going to go well together um, and making sure that there's a nice spread of different styles of drinks. So, you know, you don't want a drink that's all kind of stirred down and really boozy. You want to have some stuff that's a little bit lighter and spritzier and a bit more accessible. Um, so, yeah, there's definitely a few different ways to come at that. And I've noticed also there's been a real... Um advancement I guess in mocktails yeah absolutely it's really cool um I mean I think non-alcoholic products in general um I've tried some really awesome uh non-alcoholic beers and wines as well Mm. um definitely with cocktails or like non-alcoholic cocktails they used to maybe feel like a little bit of an afterthought and just kind of whatever juices were in the fridge thrown together or whatever and now you're definitely seeing as much time and energy put into um creating really kind of you know, grown up and delicious ones of them as well. You get non-alcoholic gin and tonic. My friend got that when she was pregnant and it was better than whatever I ordered. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, really, really good stuff out there. I think there's a first um, non-alcoholic bars opening like Brunswick Aces and mm. Brunswick are um, opening one up and they do really good. They call it Sapir, but yeah, that kind of almost spirit, like gin, gin-like spirit. What, what's the most underrated base alcohol? Uh, I mean, I would have to say sherry. I like building silver <gasps> and sherry um, and get to do that a lot of Bomba, which is a lot of fun, but it's obviously not something that people maybe necessarily think of. But it's a little bit lower in EBB as well, um, a bit closer to being a wine or something. So you can have a few without being under the table or, you know, <laughs> yeah. you can be able to be up for the breakfast show. <laughs> we know that you're, goodness, we know <laughs> you're sympathetic to the... Um, to the espresso martini, is there one that you actually, uh, and you probably don't have it on your menu if you don't, if you resent making it, but is there one that you kind of do resent making or or don't get it as kick out of it as some others? Uh, look, honestly, not really. Potent- maybe maybe the Long Island iced tea just because I think that people order it for the wrong reasons. Like they mm. order it because they it's think got it's lots like of alcohol. real hard and, yeah. you know, they're going to get um, going to get very drunk off it. But I mean, especially in Australia, you know what the alcohol taxes are like here. No bars are actually giving, you know, you still measure it. Like, <laughs> Not actually that much more booze in there than there would be really any other drink. So that that's maybe my only slight peeve with that one. In my twenties, absolutely guilty of that. <laughs> long yeah. Island iced tea. Yeah, yeah, I'll get a long. It's got all the spirits in Never it. Never had I'll, one. Yeah, too intimidating. <laughs> I saw that some pubs are looking to. They're wanting to cut the excise on alcohol so that to invite more customers and to you know to lower some costs to. To renew themselves post COVID, is there anything your industry is pushing towards for the city of Melbourne and broader to, you know, to help you flourish? Uh, I mean, I think obviously it was really good seeing all of the the kind of outside spaces um, and things, and I hope that that stays. Uh, obviously, not you know, probably not so much through winter, but it'd be nice to see that happen again next summer, even if we are sort of living in a post COVID world at that point. I think just activating those kind of laneways and um, it made the city feel a little bit more alive as well, having all that kind of thing. Um, yeah, and I mean, I think there's a, a push through the spirits industry in general about the tax because obviously there's so many amazing Aussie spirits just now, but it's quite hard for them to compete on price, um, you know, with that and a few other kind of factors. So I think that would definitely be a nice thing to to see almost like with the wine industry, there's there's a little bit of a tax break there to make it a bit more appealing. Yeah. Is there an event or a talk on during the festival that you're not involved with, but you're keen to check out? Yeah, well, there's going to be, um, I mean, there's quite a few. Definitely if I wasn't working on Thursday, I'd be going to the tropical takeover at um, the Black Pearl because it's really cold now. <laughs> I'd like to pretend that I'm on a tropical island. <laughs> uh, but the uh, the Agave project at Bad Frankie on Tuesday is really cool. So um, there's actually, Seb Rayburn has started growing Agave, which is what tequila's made from in Australia. Um, yeah, so we're going to have our first... I mean, we obviously can't call it tequila because it's not from there, but, you know, your first Australian agave spirit um, 
I think there's already maybe one on the market, but yeah, hopefully that becomes a bit more of a thing because I, I definitely love my tequila and mezcal, mm. but it's always nice to shop local. So cool. finally happening. And just finally, what about ice? How important is ice? Do you have rules for ice or if you had your druthers, what would you do with it? Yeah. I mean, look, the more the better, really. Um, I think people tend to be a bit scared of ice, but it's ice kind of insulates itself. So if you only put a couple of cubes in, that's going to melt and disappear. Whereas if you have a nice kind of ice filled cocktail, that's going to last you a little bit longer. Um, so I think, yeah, don't be scared of ice. Would be mm. my advice. And Jerkin, can you promise us that you'll come back? On the breakfast show. Yeah, like when, when we have people. The look of dread in your face when you realise <laughs> you've got to get up at 7am. <laughs> no, I would love to. I should, yeah, I'll come and make you cocktails at some point. Some espresso yeah. martinis. Also, we'll, we can come to you yeah, as well. Right. We might you'll, do that. You'll be seeing us. Don't worry about that. Uh, well, the Melbourne Cocktail Festival is on right now until the 18th of April. For further info, head to melbournecocktailfestival.io and we've been speaking uh, from Bomber Rooftop, um, the fabulous Cara Devine. Thanks so much, Cara. Thank you. Thanks, Cara. Independent Melbourne Radio 3 R. Big day for you yesterday, Mon. Oh. Big day. So it was Mon's um, and Will's anniversary yesterday. The anniversary. Thank you. Very I'm much. Sure, I'm anniversary. Eight, what? Eight years. Oh, eight years. Because I went, I saw your Instagram post, and there was a number eight in there. I didn't know what kind of caption to write, so I just wrote eight. But sorry, when you get married, that'll you get a new anniversary. Well, the old one dies. we had this. Someone asked us this the other day. Are you still going to celebrate your, you know, dating and which is the anniversary of our first date? Because mm. we're getting married later this year. And I, and simultaneously we answered. And I said, yeah. And he said, nah. <laughs> <laughs> mm. Interesting. My parents still celebrate both. They've got a wedding anniversary and a first date anniversary. Yeah, why not? And also you could celebrate your engagement as well. There's <gasps> another one. Throw that in the That's mix. That's at least three dinners a year. Great. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, why not celebrate them all? Because um, Kath and I, we can't. Can't remember the exact date. We know it's, it's September sometime. I think mm. we have to. I have to. I have to look back at like an an Instagram post. Yeah. Of like you know. Maybe you can treat it like a horse's birthday and just go to the start of September. First, that's a great it, idea. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's a great month. idea. But now, and um, but now there's the anniversary of the engagement, which for me, obviously, quite easy to remember because it was just before my birthday, mm-hmm. and it was documented. It was documented. Um, and but the, but last year I think I came home with flowers and was like, you know, like oh I have and Kath was like oh oh yeah that's right it's so you know she's a bit like Will's like oh whatever don't, yeah right don't care about I'm the... very good with dates it's kind of a useless skill but I remember so many dates I would used to, I used to never forget a birthday and then when Facebook came in and they had people's birthdays there my skill was wasted because like I already knew this yeah well, that's a you're really yeah. undermined. I agree. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, my one. So tell us about um, tell us about your hot date last night. Oh yeah, real hot. We went out for pasta. <laughs> Did you spew again? Too much. Really than have a chunder. Really does it for him. Love you. Nah, no spew, which is good actually. No, I went out to a really great little pasta pasta restaurant called va bene, which is a good play on words because in Italian va bene means like all good, going well, penne is type of pasta. It's very cool. That's terrific. Yeah. Um, and had some something delicious, had a nice prosecco, Ooh. you know, and then had a little um, little digestive at the end, had a little amaro just, you know, at the end. Yum. And just toddled home and went to bed and fell asleep because I had to get up early. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. But that's it was really good. nice. Also, yesterday... Um, you donated blood. Yeah, so I did. Did that? Um, that would have helped you sleep at night. Does it? I felt. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, I did feel a bit oh, tired. Oh right, you mean yeah. psychologically, not because you depleted. Oh, well, was, a bit of both. Makes you a bit sleepy. Oh, yeah, okay. it does make you sleepy. I get. So the nurse, it, I get told this a bit. Mm. I don't want to brag, but okay. I've got really good veins. Oh, I can tell. And the nurse was like looking at my arm, and I don't know what it was. Like I've been doing it for a long, a long time. She's like, "That's it." That's a beautiful vein. That's Whoa. a really good vein. Have you done plasma? Oh, look at those. And she just, I was like, you need to relax. 
Imagine that it's funny, like you, you know, you see like massive their veins popping out, and you think, oh, that's a surely that's a good one, you yeah. know, because it's right there, and you can and you can see it. But apparently they're um, they're not. It's the opposite. You don't want them popping out, popping out, because they're slippery little ah, right. buggers. So it's hard to so they slip around. So that's why. It's the the popping out ones are, are tricky. And I got told as well from by this nurse, and again, not the first time I'd heard it. Yeah. Good flow. Six minutes it took for my whole donation. I did a really quick donation once and was like and they said, Oh, that was quick and I went, Is that good? Yeah. Or, <laughs> and they're like, Oh, well it's you know, it's just what it is and I was like I don't know whether, you know, that's a... Like your blood's too thin or something? Yeah. Do I need to be on medication for this now? (laughs) Have I, you know, not eaten enough? Or how long were you? Oh, it's probably four minutes. No, no. 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 I mean, so six is good flow. (laughs) Well, like sometimes I think it's taken... It can take maybe 15. This was six, six and a half minutes. Yeah. Um. I reckon it's about... I don't know exactly how long it was. They just... I remember them coming in and going, oh, that was quick. Yeah. Um... But I used to when I first started donating. We, I think we went on a school excursion, like for um, health or something. We went to the blood bank, mm-hmm. and um, so they were like, "Does anyone want to?" Don-? And I put, I was like, "I'll donate blood, yeah, for sure, just on the spot." Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, I just like being the centre of attention. Everyone had to <laughs> sit around and watch me donate blood. I look like an absolute hero. Um, and then we worked out, friends and I worked out that like when we were in year 12, when we were 18 and, you know, you're on a budget before going out, like we don't do this, but we would go and donate blood so we could... Party pies. Well, no, party pies, but also so that night you'd, when you go out, you'd only need like a couple of beers to get drunk. Oh. That's pathetic, that is isn't it? So that is just shit. I was in year twelve, like it's just. You Would know, that make a difference? I didn't feel I drunk last night. We, we thought it did. We thought it did, but that was well, our, probably did. But that, at least you know what? A lot of people are out going out there and getting drunk and not donating blood. So you were doing a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> I don't don't that don't try that. Thank you. Getting on the nangs. Yeah. <laughs> um, I've got to. I'm sorry. I just can't believe these bodybuilders. With the what is the. I mean, what do you we, mean? I didn't realise that there are nurses or whatever with a needle going <laughs> like like oh, with the because veins. this bulbous vein. Yeah, they can't get any. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> they can't get any leverage on the vein. Anyway, whatever. Yeah, you can't hold on to it, so mm. it just slips around everywhere. Where I've got to donate blood, and we should get into sync now. We yeah, I think we should. I booked donate. my next one in, but do you know what happened? If you book on the spot, get a cookie. I didn't know that. She's like, do you, you want to book your next one? anyway. No, but this was a special one they had behind the counter. Is that right? Yeah. She said, oh, here you go. That's for booking your appointment. I was like, oh. Oh, well, they, well maybe they tell it. me that. Well, now I've told everyone. Everyone. <laughs> Every, well, did you, also, did you just have one glass of Prosecco or did you order a bottle? No, just a glass. Oh, what is going on? It's weak. Yeah, it's, I'm, a, I'm a big, weak baby. I vomited last time I ate a burger. Yeah, yeah fair enough. Yeah, yeah, you've got to... I didn't know Geraldine's tip about, you know, the donating yeah. blood being an advantage. And... I don't know if it is that much of an advantage. Certainly, please don't do that. Um, donate no, you've got to donate can. blood. Do you know yeah, what was yeah. good, though? Because I've been doing it and I went all through all through last year and when you'd go in during, like, COVID, it was really empty and you'd say, how are things going? they go, oh, no, everyone's too scared to come in. We're really low on donations. Yesterday I went, it was full. Which is great. Doesn't could, mean, yeah, yeah, this is why I, I tried to book it. It was booked. It's booked up all, all week in the city anyway. Yeah. Um, and and I I would donate during um, during lockdown because it was you were allowed to. It was a great excuse to leave the house. Yeah, exactly. It was like, oh yeah, I'll go and and then if you could do it with someone else, it's like you can go and have a have a little catch up while you were donating blood. <gasps> a little chat, have a nippies. Yep. Yeah. Anyway, right. next end. time. See you in three months. Melbourne's own. Triple R. Here for Feature Creatures this week, we're joined by entomologist from Melbourne Museum, Simon Bugman Hinkley. Morning, Simon. Morning, everybody. Good morning. How are you? Back? I'm, I'm good, thank you. Yes, um, we're, we're back uh, in the museum. We've been, some of the staff have been back for a while, but yes, we've, it's nice to have... Um, Visitors back and school holidays, so little kitties running around, all that sort of thing. Yeah, so it's not. Nice. And how are the bugs going? They miss you. <laughs> um, and actually, it is nice when you've been away for a while. When you go back, you 
when I go into the collection, I can smell the mothballs, whereas if I'm there every day, I get used to it and don't smell it. People walk in and go, oh, my God, how can you work in here? And you're like, what What are you talking about? Mm. But when you have a break and you, your system sort of forgets with the smell, then it is nice to get back and get the mothballs in the nostrils again. Wow. Yeah, wow. <laughs> and do bugs live in mothballs? Um, there is. Uh, the, the drugstore beetle will actually consume um, grain, uh, grain-based, uh, the, the rat baits, there's a beetle that will actually eat the, the rat baits if they have grain in them. So I don't know if there's anything that will actually eat mothballs, but there are some pretty hardy beetles out there that will eat almost literally almost anything. Wow. Awesome. Mm. Um, and what, what's going on in the world of mites? Well, I thought we'd go on to mites because it's it's a group that doesn't get a lot of um, attention. We have done varroa mites in the past when we, we talked about that um, close incursion into Melbourne with the varroa mites and the, the bee issue, but we sort of – looking at mites as, in general as a bigger group. So they're part of the, the arachnida, which includes the spiders and the ticks and that sort of thing. In Australia, we've got about, oh, and I guess when I say mites, I assume that most people know, but, you know, they're basically, um, they look like a little oval with tiny little legs on them. So they're not particularly, most not particularly spectacular. They're just small, undifferentiated little critters. The biggest one is about a centimetre. The velvet mites are actually quite spectacular. They're um, often red and look like little moving patches of velvet. But the vast majority of species are about, you know, one or two millimetres and often not visible to the to the human eye. Mm. So in Australia, we've got about 3,000 or so species. In the world, about forty to 50,000 species. And the experts say there's anywhere between half a million and a million different species. So obviously, there's a a huge diversity of mites and we really sort of only think about them I guess when we interact with the ones that impact on us negatively so everyone would probably know dust mites Mm -hmm. so the house dust mite which can cause allergies it's so it's what's actually happening there is the the mite feeds on what's called our dander which is my new favorite word it's basically sort of like shed skin flakes and things like that So the actual, so it's not feeding on us, but the issue with the house dust mite is the the mite's feces and its shed skins as it grows are what causes the allergies to people who are prone to allergies. So there's that one, obviously, that we have in our homes. There's the scabies mite, which is not pleasant. That one does burrow under the skin and lays eggs. So that's one that, you know, we don't want to encounter. And the one, I guess, that we get at the museum the most is the bird mite. And that's... um a critter, a number of different species that hangs around nesting or roosting birds and feeds on their blood. So what happens is everyone's going along happily, maybe not so much the birds, but when the birds leave the nest, you've got a a nest full of mites that now has no birds in them. So those mites will come down into the house and they'll actually get on people and give you a little bit of a bite to see if you're a baby bird. So they don't survive on people and they don't burrow in, but they do cause irritation. And obviously that sense of, you know, being under attack, if you like, when you're in your home is quite a quite a strong trigger for people. It's pretty unpleasant. So we do get that quite a lot in Melbourne because you can imagine all the things like um, the minor birds, the starlings, all those things that nest in um, eaves and wall spaces and things like that. When they leave the nest, mites can come down into the house. So they're the, the sort of the bad negative ones, if you like. Mm. Plus, um, <laughs> I was thinking in the context of COVID how we've all been asked to you know, you wash your hands, you don't touch people, you don't do this, you don't do that. But the, the reality is that um, for the vast majority, if not all of us, we actually have mites um, living, having sex, having young on our faces um, all the time. So um, <laughs> it's obviously they don't give us COVID, but it is interesting that we, we like to think of ourselves as being clean, in inverted commas, when we wash our hands. And we are, but of course we have um, a fauna that lives on us all the time. So they're the ones that we sort of... I guess, get a bad rap. What do you mean lives on us all the time? So um, there's a, a group of mites called Demodex and there's about sort of 60, 65 species and there's two species that live on humans. So there's one that um, is sort of on the face and there's one that's around the follicles, probably the eyelashes. So they are um, – <laughs> I was thinking I possibly – I was wondering whether or not I should bring this up. But um, I was happy to have a really itchy eye this morning. Yeah. And now I'm like, oh my God, there are bugs having sex in my eye. Yeah. Okay, I shouldn't have bought up Demodex mice. <laughs> but seriously, but yeah, Simon. So look, no, sorry, go on. For the vast majority, they, the, the people who've done studies think that there's about, I think they say that about 12 or 14% of the people they look at have them. But I think there was a study that found that 
almost every face they looked at had the Demodex DNA on it. So it's quite likely that we all have um, these mites on us and we, we all have a gut flora. You know, we all have things living in us and on us. So we, we do have these very, very small mites living on our face, often with no, no repercussions. So like before I told you that, everyone was going along happily, not worrying about the mites in their eyelashes. So yeah. Mon, don't scratch the eye. Don't worry about it. <laughs> don't think about it. Have you ever brought this up on um, dates? <laughs> what was that one, sorry? Have you ever brought this up on dates? <laughs> No, I haven't. I haven't. Um, it would explain if I wasn't getting any. If, if I was bringing that up in dates, that would explain why I wouldn't be getting any more. But um, no, I haven't brought that up in dates. Right. So yeah, these are some of the, the um, ones that I guess gross people out. Yeah. But um, there's actually a huge range of thing of mites doing really good stuff. So there's predatory mites that we might be able to use for biological control. And when you go out in the leaf litter, I guess they don't get any good sort of positivity because we don't see them. If you go through the leaf litter in the forest, you'll see worms and cockroaches running away and you'll see fungi and you'll go, oh, those things are all doing a really good job recycling, um, breaking down plant matter and dead animals and re returning nutrients to the soil. There's a huge diversity and abundance of mites doing that, but because we can't see them, they don't sort of get that, um, that positive rap, if you like. So really important group of invertebrates, but some of them uh, have some really amazing um, adaptations. There's a species in uh, South America that, do you all know the army ants? You know that one from the sort of the schlock horror films that they form the huge, um, they go on on mass, the mm. colony moves on mass and they consume everything in their path. Mm. And there's sort of, you know, there's horror films in the 50s where, you know, people fall down and this carpet of ants goes over them. They're not going that fast. But mm. so the army ants, as the name implies, move en masse and just consume everything in their path. There's a, a species of mite that attaches to the, the base of the ant's leg and starts feeding on the ant's blood. The problem that causes is the army ants don't have an actual um, nest site, if you like. So when they stop, they form what's called a bivouac. And what they do is they link all the little claws on the end of their legs and form a big ball. And that's sort of their, their resting place for the night. So if you've got a mite hanging on the end of your foot, you can't join up with your worker next door. So what these mites do is their, their rear legs are curved like the claws of the ant's leg. And when they've done studies on them, the mites never straighten their legs. So they're always in that position ready to be hooked up to the ant next to them. So it's this really clever strategy because obviously the mites are a parasite. They're, they're taking blood from the ants, but they obviously don't want to cause death or weaken the colony because then that ruins their own chances. So they've actually modified their back legs to, to basically replace the ants' claws that they have sort of moved on, if that makes oh. sense. So it's this really clever strategy of allowing the ants to form their, their bivouac. And there's another really clever one um, called Antenomorphus grandi, which what it does is it gets, it's quite a large mite, it gets on the underside of the ant's head near the mouth parts and ants regurgitate food for each other in a process called trophallaxis. And what the mite does is its front, it waves its front legs to resemble the mouth parts of the ant. So an ant comes up and sees these waving legs and goes, oh, you're hungry, have some food, and regurgitates the food. And the mite's just sitting there um, going, thank you very much, I'll have some of that. So some really clever strategies of, doesn't help the ants at all, but very clever strategies by the mites to sort of um, get what they need out of the process. Mm. I'm looking at one picture of a mite and there's, as you say, of course, eight legs, but there are yep. two other, what, antennae? I, I have no idea. That look similar to legs. Oh, uh, arms. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, the, the, all the mites have eight legs, except when they're juveniles, um, they will often have six legs. And then when they become adults, they reach the eight-leg stage. So they don't have antennae as such, but those sort of projecting things are, um, it could be the, the mouth parts and it can also be um, sort of like f feel as if you like they don't have antennae as such, but sort of sensory things and or mouth parts. So they don't have antennae in the sense that an ant has antennae. Yeah. And what about how long they've been around, millions and millions? Like do you have uh, fossils of them or is it they're just too small? They're what? Yes, that's that's what I would have thought as well. But I think there was I think there was a find recently where they found one from about 450 million years ago. So you're you're completely right. Finding a mite in the fossil record is very very tough. But there was one, uh, and I think most of the records have been relatively relatively recent inverted commas, sort of like 50 60 million years ago. But then they did find some evidence of one from about 450 million years ago. So it it would imply that they are um, a very very ancient group. And obviously with that level of speciation. 
um, you know, you would think they've been around a long time to have, have developed up to a, a million different species. Okay. So the takeaways are mites, yes, they have negative attributes, but they're also unsung heroes of the forest. <laughs> oh, nicely done. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. yes, perfect. Yeah. <laughs> and also don't rub your eyes because you don't want to upset them <laughs> yeah. while mm. they're doing it. Yeah, <laughs> I hope you're having a good time. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, God, there's, and I bet there's so much more to get through as well. I mean, one of the other things I didn't, I mean, I sort of have to go, it's not, it's a little bit gross, but the, the, um, the Demodex mice doesn't actually have an anus. So what it does is it's, um, it, all the sort of waste material builds up in it. And then when it dies, it's sort of, it's on your face. So, um, yeah, that's just. So Mon's probably just rubbed. Might poo all over her eyes. <laughs> They're already having Love sex it. there. I mean, who knows what? Oh, kind exactly, of going on. exactly. What? And I go for everything. I'm yeah, just happy yeah. to help. Yeah, that's yeah. good. <laughs> like that exploding Monty Python man. Yeah. That's yeah. that's the visual that you want to go, and that's uh, it's not quite as spectacular as that. It's more probably like a passing away and a slow release. But um, <laughs> yeah, I did, I did think of the Monty Python thing, but not quite as specky as that. And then no, I won't stick around for dessert, Simon, and we'll, we'll see if. This date's falling apart. Okay, uh, Simon Hinckley, always a pleasure. Thanks very much. Thanks, I guess. Thank you. Thanks. <laughs> we were talking about um, cricket. I don't know why that came up, but you, but not wanting to be a cricket umpire and just yeah. playing cricket when you were a kid. Yesterday. There we go. Yesterday, I think. It, point is, um, did you play other sports when you were in school? Was cricket your main? Baseball. Your, Oh, here we go. American cricket. Yeah, that's what they call it over there. That's right. Uh, Tennis. Oh, yeah. Basketball. I was very good at basketball. Oh, okay. Shane Heal. You were the Shane Heal of your team. Although I look because I'm not ethically tall. Yeah, because you're just one of the greatest basketballers. Well, that's right. But also, yeah, the height thing. But Shane Heal is... You know, what is he like? Six foot five or something? One point eight three. Oh, that's a six, oh, just yeah. on six foot. Yeah, it? but yeah, I guess for a basketballer, that's short. Yeah, yeah. but yeah. I wasn't at Muggsy Bogues. No, but but anyway, yeah, you're right. Like I zipped around. Yeah, I played basketball as well. Lauren Jackson, remember, taught everything that she everything. knows. <laughs> that's right. Um, we, I, yeah, played basketball, um, but in primary school, it was uh, loved loved softball and loved cricket, but just. I guess I just loved hitting, mm. hitting balls. And there was... T-ball? T-ball, yep. Nailed it. Um, it's hard and, not to. Mm. <laughs> so easy to be good at that. Yeah, thing. you'd think so. But the amount of people that don't hit the ball and yeah. just hit the tee, <laughs> it's so funny to watch. It's like, mm. how do you, It's right there and it's so big. All right. All right. And you just hit the... And it, the ball just falls up and, and dribbles Dribble. away. Yeah. Run! <laughs> um... But do you remember, do you ever play con- continuous cricket? Do you remember oh. that? It rings a bell. Not like hanger cricket, not continuous. What's continuous? Continuous cricket is like tip and run. Yeah. So, um, but the the bowler doesn't have to wait for you to get back to the crease. You just bowl it. Yeah. So if you're not there to hit it. Oh, that's interesting. It's heaps of fun. Like so, you and also you don't run up and down. The to the the pitch to make runs. You've got to run out to the side to like a witch's hat and run around that, and then come back in. Yeah, and then to where so, the leg square leg umpire would be. Yeah, so you hit it, and then um, and then you you have to run. I'm pretty sure you have to run. Maybe you don't have to run. I get it. And then so if the bowler gets it while you're up the other end, they don't have to. They just you can pitch you can it down. so you can they run get, out the batter. Yeah, but through bowling. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, one day we were playing that and I hit the ball and I've – it was like in the movies when time slows down. Yeah. Like and it just – it soared up into the air <laughs> and just went and went and went and like – like yeah, it was like time stood still and I just stood there and watched this ball fly off and I like I just went, that is the greatest hit Ever. Like, yeah. it would have been a six. <clears throat> it was, was it a slog sweep? Where'd it go? Like, just straight. Just yeah. up. It would have you're, been... So a, you're pointing over mid-wicket area. Yeah. Yeah. Would have gone for a six if there was a fence for it to go over. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. 
And I stood there and I just was like, just watched it soar. And then slowly the world came back. Time started again. I could hear noises and I could hear everyone just yelling, run. Oh, you just I to just, run. Yeah, oh, I no. just cocked and stood there just <laughs> admiring <laughs> Yeah. Like it was baseball. Yeah. yeah. It's just like, oh, this is the sweetest shot in the world. Um, and then ran. I'm pretty sure I got out. But from that moment, developed a reputation for being able to hit a ball. Right. Oh, so strong arm hickey. Yeah. Called her. So in like not long after that, like um, we, we were playing softball. Master of Australia's baseball. <laughs> <laughs> we were playing, playing softball and uh, like the – this guy that was, you know, the team captain, you know, when they were picking teams, the captain was a notorious for being a bit of a bully and was, you know, certainly, I was certainly one of his victims. Mm. But when it came time to picking teams for softball, he first up he goes, I'll pick Hickey, she knows how to hit. Yeah. And it was like, oh, all the pressure. So I get picked first. I get picked first mm. to... Yes, I am amazed that it took me such a long time to come out, but I was picked first <laughs> in the softball team. <laughs> and then it's like, you know, we're working out the order of batting and they go, Jesse, you're up first, you go first and get us a home run. And then oh, and I was like, oh, no my pressure. God, mm. so right, much. Do pre- your best. Yeah. yeah. Good luck. No, yeah. home runner, you're out. <laughs> yeah. And this is this is from the, the class bully. Mm. <laughs> oh. Not, like it was just like. Oh, what, and great, that, what year is this? How old are you? Maybe year five or year six. Oh, primary school. Yeah. yeah, yeah, primary school. And then I'm I'm walking up to bat and then he goes, whoa, 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 stop. And he goes, here, take my lucky cap. This guy sounds like a tool. It's not all about you. God. Yeah, take my lucky cap. And it was a, so your lucky cap's not mine. Yeah, but he goes, it was a New York Yankees cap. Oh, yeah, the Yankees famous softball team. Yeah. <laughs> So he gives me his New York Yankees cap and I put it on and I go up and then they – anyway, I hit a home run and it was just oh, the, one of the greatest. It was just That's like the amazing. relief of – and I go, oh, it looks like your lucky hat works. Yeah. God, Dan, it's amazing. Oh, uh, the adrenaline. One, one thing about bait, uh, softball is I wonder if the pitchers if the pitchers get the yips because I if you don't if you hold on to the ball mm. too long mm. it's flying way up in someone's head or higher yeah mm. I, you got to let, let it go at your leg let it go at your leg yeah that's the tip yeah right if you do that like the the arm around and yeah. then and then it's almost like you hit your hand into your into and your that's thigh. when you know how to that's, let go yeah. right they're so big softballs in in yeah. primary school, we just got we only really entrusted to play t ball, and I um so I don't when you're talking about throwing it from your hip, uh, you know I can't really remember, but I do remember loving t ball. Well, t- there's no one throwing it because exactly. it's on the tee. Yeah. yeah, so um, but oh, it's pretty good at it. But then um, <laughs> one time in grade three, caught caught it and got got this girl out. Oh. Her name was Jessica, and she was new that year, and she was. Quite unpleasant. And um, I caught her out and then I was just trying to make a joke because we walked back to get to the classroom. I was like, oh, I caught you out. <laughs> in the blink of an eye, she just oh. draws back and punches me right in the gut. Oh. Like, the <laughs> like it <laughs> didn't say, say anything. Didn't just, it was just this like reflex and I have never been <laughs> winded more in my life. Oh, my God. <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> And then she just like looked at me as she did it right in the eyes and then kept walking on into the classroom. And I was just like, oh, my God. Well, that'll teach you not to gloat. I know, my God. Precisely. What, hap- what yeah. happens on the field comes out. <laughs> the big punch in the guts. Oh, yeah. my God. So that was your sporting hero moment. <laughs> no. <laughs> just thought that was better. Yeah. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Professor Tim Flannery is a paleontologist, explorer, conservationist and prolific author of titles including the award-winning international bestseller The Weathermakers, An Atmosphere of Hope and books for children such as Explore Your World, Weird, Wild, Amazing. He's in conversation this evening 
with former Chief Scientist Alan Finkel in an event titled Getting to Zero. And to tell us about it, the former Australian of the Year joins us on the line now, Tim Flannery. Welcome back to Breakfasters. Uh, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you. Um, what are you addressing tonight? We'll, we'll be looking at what it takes to get to zero. So, so Professor Finkel has produced a quarterly essay looking at technical aspects of uh, what we need to do in order to transform the electricity sector, for example, from where it is at the moment with a predominance of coal through to um, a clean energy system. So I'll be looking at that, but I also want to look at the urgency of the issue because it's something that is not really covered so much in the essay and also tease apart some of these issues like, you know, does Australia really need a gas-fired recovery from the COVID, um, you know, economic impact? Um, so they're all important questions. And what can you speak to the urgency of the issue? I mean, you've obviously been speaking of the urgency of the issue for a very long time now. How, how, uh, how has it changed in the, say, you know, few decades that you've been addressing it? Yeah, sure. Look, um, you know, we've known for a long time we've had to deal with the issue. Um, at the, after 2009 and the failure of the Copenhagen meeting, we've really been tracking the worst-case scenario in terms of emissions growth. Uh, and we're now at the point where it, you know, we, we've just had a report come out saying it, you know, it's next to impossible to get to one and a half degrees without, you know, significant drawdown, overshoot and drawdown. Um, so this is really the critical moment now, and you know, it, it's looking to me like we need to de decarbonise our economy and get to net zero by about 2035. So that's only 14 years away. So just think of how big that job is. You know, if we don't do that, the sad risk thing is we'll risk triggering tipping points in the climate system that will lead to runaway and catastrophic climate change. And what about the electricity sector? What, in your observations and from your work with uh, Alan Finkel, what, what is the state of play and is it an immovable object? Well, look, I haven't been working with Alan Finkel, but, but he makes the point that, you know, we'd have to put in as much wind and solar as we've ever put in in our entire national history. Um, we'd have to put seven times that amount in in order to decarbonise the electricity grid. And we, we, we know we can do that. We could probably do that in five years if we got onto a war footing and just decided to build everything and to do it. Um, you know, there might be a tiny bit left at the end but uh, of, of fossils, but it'd be insignificant. Um, and, you know... To decarbonise the entire economy, that's transport industry and everything else, we need to do that three times over. And I think we can do that in 15 years as well. But, um, you know, these are big challenges. There is absolutely no doubt about it. And we won't get onto them unless we get onto a war footing about this, just as the Prime Minister is doing in terms of the vaccine rollout now. Um, you're saying that it is possible to do. What, what is the biggest hurdle in making it happen? Look, the biggest hurdle is, is a lack of recognition of how urgent this is at a political level. Mm -hmm. So we still have an energy minister talking about gas and the importance of gas. Sorry, we are way, way past gas. We are now looking at clean energy. If we, if we look at a gas-fired recovery, we'll be condemning ourselves to exceeding two degrees of warming and triggering, uh, most likely triggering, you know, these catastrophic uh, climatic events. And we simply cannot afford that risk. Do you have a position on nuclear energy? Oh, look, nuclear, it's just way too late for nuclear to contribute now. You know, if you look at how long it takes to build nuclear plants and all the rest of it, um, you know, if we'd started 20 years ago, perhaps there might have been an argument, but now, you know, the quickest, cheapest and cleanest form of electricity generation for most of the world is wind and solar. So uh, just that's a distraction, nuclear, at the moment. And are there certain countries you look to have made efforts to sort of reduce their emissions and are doing it the right way that we should take inspiration from? Look, almost every country is doing better than us at setting <laughs> targets and, and planning forward. Um, you know, and each country is doing things a little bit differently. So there's some really fantastic European energy uh, companies that are doing wonderful things. Uh, in Canada, there's a company that is involved with direct air capture, uh, and and they are you know addressing the drawdown side of things. Um, but I'd say we we just got to look around the world for the best examples in each sector, and then then you know really start moving. With your um uh, your lockdown and with with now that lockdowns ended, 
uh, and of course you you love our country passionately. Is it? What do you think about the exploring domestically? Have you been excited uh, to see Australians sort of embrace their own country and see the splendour that we have? Yeah, look, I think it's important that people get out there and see see what we have. Um, from a climate perspective, of course, some of it is very endangered. So the Great Barrier Reef at one and a half degrees, seventy percent of it will be gone. At two degrees, ninety nine percent of it will be gone. Mm-hmm. So you know, we live in a rapidly changing world. By all means, get out there and explore. If you can do it in an electric vehicle, all the better. Mm. What about the the taxes on electric vehicles? That proposal is that something that uh, you'd rather we avoided, or are you neutral on the issue? Well, unbelievably retrograde. I mean, you know, we've the, the federal government policy on on electric vehicles is pathetic, and there's no other word that's suitable for it than that. It's a disgrace. Um, the, the state proposals to to uh, to tax electric vehicles are absolutely unwarranted. They will simply get in the way at the moment. We, 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 you know, we can look at taxes down the road, but now is not the time to do it. You know, you try to buy an electric vehicle here in Australia, the costs are on the range of $80,000. Yet I've got a friend in India I was speaking to just two nights ago who's bought a, a, a fully electric SUV uh, with a 450-kilometre range for the equivalent of 20000 Australian dollars. Sure. So we are so far behind in this country, it's a disgrace. Mm. And the issue of hearts and minds and winning them in Australia, uh, is that, are we reaching a tipping point there in any way? And it's kind of related to that, I'm thinking about the media diversity inquiry and whether you have a, any opinions on uh, the conversations around the climate debate. Yeah, look, some of the media in Australia is, is incredibly retrograde and have been quite... But the, playing a disgracefully political game with something that should be above politics. There's no doubt about that. But despite all of that, we have now won through and the great number, you know, the great majority of Australians want action on climate change. You know, councils are leading with action on climate change, state governments are leading, but the federal government is holding us back. And sadly, there are some things only the federal government can do. So we need change and change very quickly. We need change this year, actually, if we're going to start getting on top of this issue. Mm-hmm. And uh, what are you looking forward to learning from Alan Finkel tonight? Is there, is it, do, you, do you feel like you're across most of what he has to say? I know that you, of course, uh, mentioned that you want to talk to him about the, uh, the urgency of the issue, I think. But is, it, is there anything that... Because how, how, we look to you, yeah. and do you look to Alan Finkel? <laughs> like, <laughs> well, look, you know... We, we saw last year that when Alan Finkel gave his press club address that you know, 25 of the nation's most prominent climate scientists wrote to him um, saying that while they supported much of his analysis, that what he'd missed was the urgency mm. and that they felt let down that he hadn't recognised how urgent this issue was. So I want to pursue that. I want to have a look at gas and see what his position is in terms of gas in the energy transition. I want to know what he thinks about brown hydrogen, so making hydrogen from coal. And that's going on right now in this country. Uh, you know, and, and for every kilogram of hydrogen we make, we create 88 kilograms of CO2. So and that's just going straight into the atmosphere at the moment. Mm. So what, what, where do these technologies sit in, in uh, our ex-chief scientist's view? And, and uh, I'd just like to unpack some of that. Yeah. And just finally, what about the throwing your arms in the, up in the air for, in relation to, say, China, where, uh, you know, there might be countries that eliminate their coal-fired um, power and yet it's it's compensated for with China's explosion in them. Is there, is there an antidote to any nihilism there? Look, the, the, the situation in China is complex, and what we're seeing is that provincial governments are building a lot of infrastructure, including coal-fired power plants, as job creation schemes, and um, some of those are not even operating, you know. And if you look at the overall efficiency of coal-fired power plants in China, they're at less than 50%. 
which is amazing. They're higher in you know most countries are higher than that. So what coal-fired power plants they do have are not running full time. So you know I wouldn't give up hope with China. I think yes they are building some new coal-fired power plants, not as many as in the past, but in the rest of the world coal is is really rapidly fading out. Okay. So particularly for energy generation. All right. Well, the online event, Getting to Zero, Alan Finkel and Tim Flannery. It's a conversation between former chief scientist Dr. Alan Finkel, well, of course, Professor Tim Flannery. Uh, it's tonight, 5 p.m. to 6.30 p.m. And for more information to register, head to La Trobe University website's Ideas and Society section. That's www.latrobe.edu.au. And uh, we've been speaking with Professor Tim Flannery. Thanks very much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. And I hope lots of people tune in. I think it'll be a good discussion. Absolutely. Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. Nikki Britton is this year a nominee for the Melbourne Comedy Festival Most Outstanding Show and winner of the Best Comedy Weekly Award at the 2020 Adelaide Fringe. Her show, One Small Step, is on now at the festival. But first, she joins us this morning as uh, Breakfast's Friday Funny Bugger. Hey, Nikki. Hello, you guys. How's it going? Very well, Good thank thanks. you. Tremendous. Great to see you. You would have been yeah. up, had a late one last night. Oh, I was hosting a late show until, gosh, who knows, One thirty? I don't what? know. Um, and I'm not going to suggest the lack of sleep is a problem to you breakfasters. You guys are doing this every morning. <laughs> but at this point, I am uh, I am nocturnal. This could just be a lucid dream. I'm not <laughs> what is, what, how does it affect, because how many shows have you done? We're coming towards the end now. A hundred and fifty-five. Um, real time, maybe twenty. Jez, something like oh, that. Oh, you've yeah. done. I've done. I've done one extra, but um, so I think like it's twenty-two all up, and we've got Friday, Saturday, Sunday to go. So it's there nineteen. You go. Nineteen. Are you sick of the sound of your own voice? Do you no longer find yourself funny? <laughs> wow, you've been talking to my therapist. Um, <laughs> Uh, that's absolutely true. Um, <laughs> gee whiz, we are still putting on a good show every night. What is One Small Step? One Small Step is about um, a step I took on a trip I took to Europe a few years ago. So it's actually a, a tale from the before time. Oh, retro. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a bit of a retro tale, uh, and I wasn't sure if I was going to tell that story. It felt funny now, but um, my accountant said that it was the only way I could write the whole trip off on tax. <laughs> it has been a tough year, obviously, for the arts, so I um, really need that cash. <laughs> and um, the the nomination, what what's that done to you? Um, made me legitimate in my parents' eyes a little bit more, I think. Um it's look. It's so nice. We, none of us do this to get awards, um, but it is such a nice feeling. Like everyone feels like they're an imposter, mm. especially in a job where everything is so subjective, mm. and there is no university degree you can do to be qualified for it. And it's really just you up there with your opinions and your thoughts. And it's hard to not feel like, oh, gosh, oh, am I on the right track? What am I doing? Am I an imposter here? Um, And so at least just for one day Mm. you can feel like, oh, nah, it's all right. (laughs) You're doing all right. Um, um... uh, The the people, I mean, Jez included, the people that are nominated this year are just like, Unbelievable and such good mates and the best of humans. So um, it really feels like we've all already won. Really. Yes, I totally Aww. agree. Absolutely. I was lucky enough to be there when because um, you we did upfront on Monday night and your your parents came and you hadn't even told you all day. You hadn't even told your dad. So I got to be there when you told your dad. <gasps> yeah, yeah, it was pretty nice and it was really nice because. Jez and Zoe Coombs Ma were there as well, and they could really legitimise what that meant to my dad because he was like, "Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah." It was. 
Oh, yeah, you could tell that he didn't really know quite how to react because he was like, there was, he was, I think he was suitably impressed for a father, like of so, yeah. someone that's not, he was like, oh, oh, did you? Well, yeah, good on you. So it was that kind of. <laughs> and, uh, oh, you took the bins out, did yeah. you? Well done. <laughs> but it was, yeah. yeah, it was a suitable impression. Um, also, your mum came to the show, and your mum features in the show a little bit, and she she got to see it the other yeah. night. I heard, um, I think Denise Scott went and saw it the night that your mum was there, and she said, it made me wish that I had have been there. <laughs> yeah, look, um, in the story I do talk about a trip that I took with mum and um, without giving too much away, she gave an impromptu performance yeah. on this particular trip that I talk about and I thought, well, she's in town, why not recreate that impromptu oh. performance? And um, and so she got up and she did a number at the end of the show. Unfortunately, she has gone back home now, so she's not available. But gee whiz, she'd be on a plane straight back down if anyone wanted to book her. Um, <laughs> how, improm- how impromptu was it? Like you say impromptu, but was she worded up? Um, I, I did word her up beforehand. She talked to it like a duck to water. Um uh, she hadn't seen the show before, but by the time we were going home to my Airbnb, she was um, referring to the show as her number. Um, when I did, uh, um, I think they enjoyed my number. So yeah, she's uh, she's born for the spotlight. Well done to us. <laughs> um, exactly. Also, I've got to ask: uh, you moved to a bigger venue last night. What was that like? Oh, my gosh. Um, well, it was very warm already, probably warmed up by the incredible Geraldine Hickey. Um, We're at the same venue. It was, so, it was so nice. I'd actually, strangely enough, got a message that morning from someone who seven years earlier or nine years earlier, seven shows earlier, had um, <laughs> had seen me in the carpet room. And bless, the carpet room is quite literally where they keep the carpet at the Forum Theatre for the rest of the year. And that is a 28-seat room. And that was the very first show I ever did. And they happened to come the night before uh, to the, the room in Town Hall and say, we heard you're in the bigger room. We just wanted to say congratulations oh. because we saw you last night and the show was so much fun, but we saw you the very first year you did it in a literal cupboard. Um, <laughs> so uh, it, it put everything in perspective. It's just it's just so lovely. Everyone's got each other's back this year at the festival and it's just such a nice time to be there. Yeah. Live audiences are back, of course, at full capacity. Has there been any, apart from your mother, of course, has there been any standout events or... Uh, moments in, of of live theatre that you can't get sitting at home in your pajamas doing gigs over Zoom or whatever. <laughs> yes, there was a couple in my first week. There was a couple, um, uh, uh, Walter and Terang, uh, and I knew their names. Um, and I also know that their son had booked the tickets, but their son couldn't come anymore because Gary Ablett had called him to babysit his children. Um, so now their son was babysitting Gary Ablett's kids and they had come to the show instead. And I don't know if the son would have been more chatty or less chatty, but his parents, uh, wowee, they put on a show. Because so you found out all that information during the show. It's not like you had to chat to them before or after. During? They stood up in the show and revealed all that. Nah, sit down. Well, I tried to I tried to suggest that, but Therese, I mean, I think she'd found her platform and she, <laughs> she was just really going for gold. Um, she would, each time, you know, there's a bit of crowd work. I will chat maybe to you. She really took the ball by the horns and she began standing up. Anytime there was a question answered, she would stand up in the crowd and turn around because she was in the second row. She would turn around and address the rest of the crowd with her answer or not even an answer in the end, just a, just a few statements, a few opinions. Oh, this is Nikki Britton host Q&A. <laughs> and then Walter got in on the bandwagon as well. He was standing up. They were doing a double act. Um <laughs> Yeah, the show ran pretty long that night. Oh, my God. Wow. Walter and Therese. Um, And 
what is your dad most proud of you for, do you think? <laughs> um, boy, oh boy. A, a very few hours sleep here. You're asking the deep questions. Um, I think my dad, it, well, when I, I graduated acting school and dad came to graduation and, um, and he, said, he said, well done. Well, you've earned yourself a piece of paper that means that one day if you're lucky, you might be able to hang your ass out the window of your own cab. <laughs> <laughs> and since then, I've just been clawing my way you know, into his, his, his respect. Um, at some point, hopefully I'll get there. Yeah, well, at least you got Walters. Just one... <laughs> One more thing, if you if you were like a, a, a grandmother trying to promote this show, how would how would you do it? Um, sure. I'd say, now listen, sweetheart, this is this show is I mean there's a few cheeky bits in it, but my goodness, the belly laugh. My dentist fell straight out of my face, I was laughing so hard and I've got, I've got, I was wearing the tenor ladies anyway, luckily, but that, uh, was, that was good because I would have covered the whole chair. So. <laughs> uh, Nikki Britton, One Small Step, is on for not very many more nights left, so head to comedyfestival.com.au for uh, tickets and more information. Nikki, uh, great to have you on this morning, and uh, we'll let you get back to sleep. <laughs> Thank you so much, guys. <laughs> Woo! <sighs> That's right, Triple R. You've been listening to a podcast of the best bits of the Breakfasters, which is the Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Feel free to get in touch with us via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram or via the Triple R website.